This is undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Hey. I'm going to name some famous black women. Okay. And I'm going to ask you if you've ever heard of them or what you've heard of them. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is, test is not set up for me to succeed, is it? You may. <laughs> okay, let's start with some easy okay. easy shooters. Okay, give me a softball. Okay, here. all right. Just off the bat. Uh huh. Historically, some famous black women. Great. Go. I'm not even. I'm not going to give you my test. Are we talking modern? modern Any time period. Pick your period. You okay. know. Serena Williams. <laughs> my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> you did that on purpose. Yes, it's true. I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, Ida B. Wells. Whoa, Matthew! Okay. Big guns. Journalist. Oh. Uh, that's, that's that's where I'm right. coming from. That is right. What you know about Wellsy? Uh, <laughs> Ida B. Wells was uh, a bit of a muckraker, as as we like to call her. She uh, was an investigative journalist, someone who was not afraid to step on toes, and um, was interested in unearthing inequities for all people that she was reporting on. Okay. She came, became very famous as a journalist and an activist and a researcher um, in the late 19th century, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Became especially prominent with her, her anti-lynching campaign. Right. Right. To kind of hear the atrocities that were, you know, happening uh, in America. And at one point she had to leave the United States. Yeah. Uh, she's from close by here, yeah. Memphis. Yeah. And went to Chicago. Right. Right. Was involved in the women's movement in that early period and in the early 20th century and was a force. She's one of my um, she's one of my people. Yeah. Yeah. Rightfully I, so. I, yeah. Sweat her real hard. <laughs> 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 you know, Nicole Hannah Jones, uh, the, sure. author of the, the uh, 1619 project. project, her Twitter name is. Ida Bay Wells. Yes. <laughs> I was like, why did I think about that? <laughs> Day late and a dollar short. All right. Okay, so, all right, Serena Williams, uh-huh. Ida Wells. Uh-huh. Who else? Um, I'm trying to think of people who make me sound well-rounded, <laughs> besides a tennis player and a journalist. Um, I mean, when I think, I mean, the first people that kind of come to mind are like uh, civil rights leaders, like okay. Rosa, Rosa Rosa Parks. Parks. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I'm trying to think of historical black women, and I'll be honest, like not a ton of names immediately come to mind. What about black men? Do you think you would be able to name more black men? I'm sure I would. Yeah, okay. I think that would come a lot easier. I mean, it's easy to think of. Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, Arthur Ashe, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, a lot of folks, especially in that kind of era. Um, and of course, as a basketball fan, it's easy for me to name off a lot of, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. important black men in uh-huh. the NBA's history. Right. Uh, Bill Russell, um, you know, LeBron James, folks right. like that, who are uh-huh. more than just athletes, but to take a point to use their platform to do more than just play sports. Mm-hmm. So the activism. Okay. 
What about, okay, let's do like this. Harriet Tubman, you've heard of sure, her. Sure, yeah, yeah, Underground okay. Railroad. Okay, Un- wow, okay. So she was known as a kind of Moses yeah. of her people, right? Yeah. She helped escape, enslaved people escape and help others, serving as a conductor, returning to the South many times. To, right. Isn't that gangster? Yeah, very yeah, much so. <laughs> Whoa, I mean, uh, good Lord, that's a lot of work. Like, what kind of conviction yeah. does a person have to have to return so many times? Yeah. Almost. A, I leave uh, my key at home sometimes and I don't want to go back. Yeah. <laughs> You know what? It's fine. It's, I'll get it later. I'll just not have lunch today. <laughs> I'm like, I'm good, you know? Yeah. But you, the kind of commitment, and I think about her often when I get frustrated with, you know, activism or, mm. you know, you get tired and I'm like, wow, she returned like 19 times. Yeah. You know, she was a spy. Mm-hmm. She was a guerrilla soldier and a nurse for the Union Army during the Civil War. Yeah. You know, so she was considered one of the first African-American women to serve in the military, right? And I mean, that 19th century emancipation period, we don't really think about that, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Sojourner Truth, certainly you've heard of her. I know the name. I honestly couldn't tell you what she did. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm familiar with the name, though. Okay. You've heard Ain't I a Woman? Sure. Yeah. So you've heard her poetry. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. she was like a little badass like that. Yeah. Where, you know, she talked about if there was this kind of a movement in that period where, you know, white women were fighting for, you know, rights, voting rights and all kinds of that, that early, you know, first wave yeah. movement. And then black women had to, you know, that's where we think about intersectionality. They're right. fighting for women's rights as well as abolition, right? Yeah. Um, black rights. And she said, there's a great stir about colored men getting their rights, but not a word about colored women. Hmm. And if colored men get their rights and not colored women theirs, you see the colored men will be masters over the women and it will be just as bad as before. So I am for keeping the thing going while things are stirring, because if we wait till it is still, it will take a great while to get it going again. I want women to have their rights. In the courts, women have no right, no voice. Nobody speaks for them. I wish women to have her voice there. Hmm. You know? Yeah. So she didn't want women to be liberated from one white master and into another right. patriarchal, you know, master in her home. Yeah. You know? So she was a force in terms of, um, you know, she's like, she asked the men, it's like, you know, who made? I don't need who, your permission. Yeah, yeah. She's like, <laughs> who made? Who who made Jesus? God and a woman. Yeah, exactly. Men had nothing to do with it. Like kick rocks. <laughs> like, you know, like who are you to think about not giving some people their rights? Yeah. You know, what about Mary McLeod Bethune? Um, there is a college. Ha Good job on the right road. Yeah. Uh, HBCU. What, what's the? There's Matthew a, Cookman. Cookman. That's yes. What it is. Okay. Yeah. Down by, they have a great rivalry with Florida A and M. Uh huh. Yes. Yes. So involved she, in that university's naming. Then is this the same person? Yes. Okay. Yes. 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 So she was like you know later part of the 19th century into the 20th century. She was one of those kind of important black educators, Mm. right? Women's rights leaders. She, you know, set out the educational standards for many of today's black colleges, Mm. right? 
she was an advisor for President Franklin Roosevelt and gave African-Americans, you know, that kind of advocacy on the government side. You know, she had benefited from education, wanted African-Americans to to also benefit from that. And so you are correct. She opened um, a boarding school um, in Florida for the training of black people. And eventually um, that school became a college that merged with the all-male school, Kutman Institute, to form Bethune-Kutman College in 1929. And so they would soon start offering degrees later on. Well, there is one more famous black woman that we're going to hear about today. Fantastic. With our speaker. And we are so happy to welcome to the Undisciplined podcast. This professor is doing cutting-edge stuff. Cutting-edge stuff in some of, I think, the most interesting areas um, from my perspective of, of historical research and study. So our guest today is the chair of the history department and the Richards Professor of American History at the University of Delaware. She has research and teaching interests at the intersection of gender, race, disability, citizenship, and law. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm like cutting edge stuff. Yeah. That, that, that all together just fascinates me. Professor Allison Parker of the University of Delaware. Welcome to the Undisciplined Podcast. Thank you so much, Dr. Banton. I really appreciate it. It's so nice to be here with you. And I loved the setup for this. When I arrange, I don't know, some professors, different professors have different schemes, how they arrange their books in their office. Mine... Mine seemingly might not have rhyme or reason, but I arrange my books not based on like alphabetical order or, you know, color scheme or topic or topic. <laughs> it's which people I want to talk to which people. Oh, that's so, great. Yes. Yeah, it. So it's Eric Williams <laughs> and Walter Rodney and Frederick Douglass and Mary Church Terrell. So it's 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 things like that. It's like, oh, I wonder if these people spoke, what would they say? Mm. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, and that's exactly what we can get here, because the other woman who she was actually very good friends with, although they had their moments of competition as well, was um, Mary McLeod Bethune. Mm. So Mary McLeod Bethune was younger and really Mary Church Terrell was her mentor. And she heard her speak at a National Association of Colored Women convention and said right away, this woman should be president of this organization. She is brilliant. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. And so... I think that Mary Church Terrell felt some uh, sense of pride in where Mary McLeod Bethune ended up going. And she was particularly pleased with the fact that she became part of what they called the Black Cabinet for FDR and was in the Roosevelt administration in the National Youth Administration working on questions about um helping African-American youth uh, during the Depression. So that was the connection that they had. But they were friends and colleagues for decades. Oh, wow. That is interesting. I want to ask you, what got you into this research? And I noticed that you did, you, you, you know, you did that book um, looking at 1873 to 19. 19- 
33. And I'm wondering if that's where that interest came from. How did you get to this kind of research? Yeah. So for the last book that I wrote, which was um, Articulating Rights, and what that book was about was trying to look at black and white women's political thought and looking at how they made a claim for themselves as citizens in a country where in most states they weren't given the right to vote. So it's really about how did they see themselves as full citizens and what what kinds of claims did they make on the state? And so each chapter deals with another, a different woman. And in fact, in that book, I have a chapter on Frances Ellen Watkins Harper. (laughs) And in addition to that chapter, my last chapter was on Mary Church Terrell. And because I was looking at their political thought, it's more of an intellectual history, but I wanted to know, of course, about their personal lives and their life stories because that affects and um, determines to some degree where they come up with the ideas that they have. And so I, in each case for every chapter, read as many biographies as I could find so that I would have that background information. And there were interesting things to read about all of these women, except for Mary Church Terrell. And shockingly enough, although she's in a lot of people's books as in chapters or parts of a book, there is no scholarly biography of her at all until mine. And I couldn't believe it um, because she's a major figure. She was one of the co-founders and the only two black women who helped co-found the NAACP were Ida B. Wells Barnett and Mary Church Terrell. Right. So how how is it that she didn't have a biography? And so I started looking into it and realized that, in fact, she had a lot of papers, and they were all at Howard University, the University of Memphis, the Library of Congress. It wasn't going to be, you know, hard to find her. And so I just thought, this is a challenge that I need to take on. And so it took me over a decade to write. Uh, it's a it's a big project to take on the life of someone who was born enslaved in 1863 and was an activist until she died in 1954, the same year as the Brown v. Board of Education oh decision. Oh my goodness, look at you <laughs> spanning all these historical periods. I exactly. mean, you're not, you're not allowed to do that. I mean, oh, really? no, you, you get post-emancipation or you get civil rights. You know, (laughs) that's usually how it works. Very fascinating, very fascinating that you can make these different periods talk to each other. And so once you started putting those papers together, her archive together, you know, what are the things that kind of turned you on the most? What about her that what did you find out about her that you perhaps did not expect to find? Or when you thought it, you found it, you were like, huh, or as Oprah would say, aha moment for you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think one way to think about that is to go back to this question of how long her life was and how many generations or, or different kinds of movements she spanned. And the title of my book is Unceasing Militant. And that phrase actually comes from Paul Robeson. Oh, yeah, I love him. Oh, he's my favorite too. 
So he's, you know, an uh, an artist, a singer, um, an actor, and a communist and uh, left wing politician. Got or his not passport taken away, right? Exactly. Got you know he was really targeted by the U.S. government. And when she died, they had worked closely together. And when she died in his eulogy for her, he called her an unceasing militant in the Black freedom struggle. Wow. There is no greater praise. Exactly. No greater praise from no better person. So that to me was an aha moment. And it really made me think about the question of this notion of unceasing militant and what it means to be able to carry on an activist career over many, many decades. And one of the things that I wanted to communicate in this book was for young people who are thinking about activism and social activism, and especially after George Floyd's murder and the summer uprisings, and then this kind of reawakening of a larger conversation about anti-racism in America, I wanted people to be able to think and be clear about the fact that it's not about one summer of protest or one season, but that actually it has to be pretty sustained we be we who believe in freedom must not rest until it comes exactly and so one of the things that i really appreciate are other historians who've done similar kinds of work like jean theo harris's book on rosa parks Mm -hmm. where she says it you know her career as an activist does not start when she sits down right She had been working to fight against white males attacks against black women in the South. She had been trying to get people prosecuted, uh, white men prosecuted for rape and murder on those kinds of cases. She was an executive secretary, meaning like she had an elected position in the NAACP. She was an important activist before all of that happened. So the kind of myth that kids... I hope don't get any more in the classes, but used to get, which was, oh, it was this tired old lady, you know, who she was a seamstress and she was tired and she just decided she had had enough and she just wasn't going to get up. You know, I, I tell people, well, she was 43. Wow. I don't think that's that old. Neither do I. I'm not that far away from that. <laughs> exactly. And I, I am, but in the opposite direction. And I don't think I'm old. So, you know, so, <laughs> but I think it's important to realize that, you know, when she died, Rosa Parks was actually, I can't remember if she was in her 90s, but she was old when she died. But she sure as heck was not old when uh, she was uh, making a decision to sit. And so those are the kinds of things that I think we need to know more about. And so in some ways, Mary Church Terrell is an excellent example of a person who is persistent in her activism, but also willing to try multiple kinds of activism, usually all in the same year, week, day. Mm -hmm. So she didn't change as much as people say she did. I don't think she became radical in her old age. I think she was radical at the beginning, but that people have missed that radicalism in the story. Dr. Parker, as someone who is not a historian in any way, shape, or form, it's interesting to me why there are certain names that people know that, like, you know, we know Rosa Parks' name, we know certain people's names. Why don't we know Mary Church Terrell's name? 
And why don't we learn that in like public education? We can only have two at one time. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> to some degree, that's really true, right? What, yeah. What's the little sidebar that we have space for, right? But I think one of the questions that I've always wondered about is thinking about her contemporary Ida B. Wells. That's the best example. Yeah. Uh, and part of me thinks that this is in part due to the fact that Black women's history is still relatively young as a field. It really only developed in the 1970s and 80s in any significant uh, sustained way. And Black women who were doing that work were looking for contemporary heroes, right? Role models who they felt spoke to them today. And I think that Ida B. Wells's clear and slightly more open defiance was appealing. And Mary Church Terrell, especially uh, in the 19th century, when she's the head of the National Association of Colored Women, is portrayed as someone who's so elite and so out of touch with the masses that we can't even really see her as a role model for other Black women. Because she's so unattainable? Yeah, but, well, because you know she's one of the only Black women with a college education mm. and with a master's degree. Even she spoke five languages. She was the head of the board of education in D.C. The first, I'm not the head. She was on the board of education, and she was the first Black woman to be in that position. And the slogan of the National Association of Colored Women, which she created the name of, was lifting as we climb. Yes, And so that is controversial because there's a sense that it implies lifting other people who are lower than you. But in fact, she was born enslaved. (laughs) So she's talking about this from her own personal experience. And, you know, you raised Serena Williams as an example. And I actually think that This is an important moment to talk about something about Mary Church Terrell that I found that really helped me, I think, Dr. Batten, shift the story, right? Mm -hmm. And that's this question of how much is she like other women? Wow. And I think that it's over the subject of Black women's maternal health and reproduction that you can really see this playing out. Because she had, over the course of the late 1890s, when she was leading all these major organizations and doing all this work, she had a late-term miscarriage, she had a stillbirth, and she had the death of a baby who was born alive but died in an improvised incubator in a segregated hospital in Washington, D.C. Wow. Right? The most elite woman around can't get the medical care. Just like Serena. My point exactly. (laughs) Right? So there are these connections that make me be able to say that our understanding of who she was is not what we think. What does she do when once she experiences all of, oh my goodness, I can't even, you know, all of those hardship concerning childbirth and fertility and all of that kind of stuff. How does she turn that into activism? 
Right. Well, you're exactly right. That's exactly what she did. Right. Because she was really depressed and it was extremely uh, hard on her. But one of the things that she figured out is that this was something that she could help with. And so she realized that black women more than anybody else, because they worked outside of the home more than any other women did, needed daycares, nursery care, kindergartens. There were kindergartens, but they were only for white children. And so part of her idea was let's help the children who do survive to survive and thrive Mm -hmm. by creating all of these different kinds of daycare options and then schooling options. And then she also advocated, because she had an instinctive sense of this. Now there's scientific evidence to back it up. But she believed that if Black women became nurses and even doctors, although that was a little more unattainable. But if they became nurses, they would be able to help other Black women when they were having health emergencies. And she believed their health care situations would be improved by care of people who cared about them. And we know now that that is, in fact, the case. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think about the ways when, you know, when, you know, I as a black woman go in front of a medical practitioner, how I start to humanize myself to them. I start performing like, you know, oh, I love your glasses. Oh, yes. Oh, thank you so much. Um, Keep me alive. Mm. (laughs) You know, during this procedure, (laughs) you know, Mm. I have people who love me, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can just imagine how, you know, once she experiences those kinds of things, how, you know, come into that kind of a realization. And that's really... Interesting. But, I, you know, I want to go back to Matthew's question that, you know, earlier when you said, how come we don't know so much about people like Mary Church Terrell? And I wasn't kind of joking when I said we care, we're allowed to at the time. It's, you know, it is a case that black women history is relatively a young feel. But Kelly Carter Jackson, um, she wrote a book called Force and Freedom. And uh, about black abolitionists and the politics of violence. And she I heard her, you know, give a talk one time and she made the argument about, you know, how we can only have two. (laughs) It's a kind of real scarcity mentality when we talk about black history. Right. We only have two in each period. So we might know about, say, Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, you know, as abolitionists. And we know about MLK and Rosa Parks, you know, and now we know about Barack Obama and Oprah. You know what I mean? It's a very scarcity mentality that dominate our historical sphere. And I wonder if there's an element of like white people can't expect or can't be expected to understand the nuances between black people, right? Well, you can't be too much. You can't be the center. You have to know your place. You know, it's like, no, we're having all this pushback because we're trying to de-center. There are too many stories being told. It's making the people angry. You know, they're banning all, you know, all this history and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, when it was in the background, when you only know Rosa Parks and, you know, and MLK, it was fine. Like, you know, we can just do that. Well, and it's also this element, too, of like, it's a flashcard. (laughs) 
right? You're not actually learning anything about these people. You're not actually like understanding their stories and exactly. finding ways to relate to it. It's just like, here's the flashcard. All right, that's Malcolm X. This is what yeah. he did. Okay, this is Rosa Parks. She sat on a bus. Yes. Right? You're not really understanding their you're stories not and you're not connecting to them as human beings. Yeah, and you're not contextualizing why it was important for them to do these things. And it's just a, you know, here's the year of birth, year of death, and here's one fun fact about them. Yeah, when I when I when I'm teaching and I you know say we have IDs and I ask students to identify, you know, people and part of it is I I emphasize them is you have to give the significance. Yeah. What is significant about this person? So you have to do the who, what, when, and why, right? And, and so it's often, you know, very trip up because they're like, yeah, Rosa Parks sat on a bus. And I'm like, what does that mean for, right. you know, larger black history, right. you know? We'll be right back. On the first episode of the newest podcast from KUAF and the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, The Beloved Community, University of Arkansas Chancellor Dr. Charles Robinson speaks with host Lindsay Leverett about his work at the University of Arkansas and about his commitment to the land-grant mission of the University of Arkansas to help create a better future for individuals and society as a whole. Thinking about how, again, in everything that we do, what those who are least among us in terms of their resources, what impact it would have on them. I think that is in line with Dr. King and his dream and, and, and the responsibility we have as campus leaders to build this beloved community. Listen and subscribe to the Beloved Community Podcast for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. I want to know, how did you see yourself or what skills or things about you, maybe as a woman, as as an activist, did you bring to this kind of a research? I think what I tried to bring to it was this sense of empathy, interest, commitment, activism. My mother was an activist and she was somebody who studied and was interested in women's history and brought it to the high school that she taught in Los Angeles. And she actually invited people like Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, Shirley Chisholm, Amy Tan, absolutely amazing people came for Women's History Month. Wow. So I had a real amazing role model who was giving her students incredible role models and people who were making change in very concrete ways. And so I've always wanted to come to a story and be able to to tell a, a story in a biographical form. I had never done that before to write a biography. And it's a real challenge because it is a little bit less like an, a regular academic book and you have to try to tell a story. And so that was what I was trying to do, but to do it with as much contextual understanding and background, and then sharing drafts of the manuscript with my colleagues who were also with me at the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at 
Emory was really fantastic because they gave me so many good ideas and we were able to feed off of each other as we all wrote our books together really during that year. So that was just an incredibly lucky experience to have a way to write, not not really alone, but together. A question, Dr. Parker, that I have, I recently interviewed a woman who just wrote a book about the century of Arkansas stateswomen, people who, um, from 1922 to 2022, the history of women who finally got to become state legislators in Arkansas. And in her research, there was a lot of overlap between folks who were interested in abolition, folks who were interested in the suffrage movement, and folks who were interested in the temperance movement. Um, and you talk a little bit about that connection between temperance and abolition. What is the intersectionality there? And I think that's something that is really interesting to me to think about, you know, the idea of abolition, but also the idea of like abolishing alcohol, right? Where's the connection there? Well, I think it's all connected to a feminist perspective where temperance is really about wife abuse and child abuse. Hmm. And it's about what happens when men drink. So part of it is economic, because if they're drinking up the paycheck, then your children and you are going to go hungry. But then it often ties into questions about domestic abuse and violence at home. And so in earlier times, and then also in the later part of the 19th century, when the Women's Christian Temperance Union was formed, yeah. um, Frances Harper was the one of the earliest um, Black women to lead a department within the Women's Christian Temperance Union. And she was the leader of, um, they called it various things at different points, but kind of like the colored department, but uh, she brought black women into temperance because they were facing the same problems that white women were facing. So there's that connection. And then it's also tied to the notion that women are interested in using constitutional amendments and the federal government to make changes because they see the states and ideas about states' rights as not helping them. Sure. Right. And especially black women see that the federal government or a, or a national constitutional amendment is going to get something done in a way that especially a Southern state won't help them get done. And so they're very much in favor of things like the 18th amendment, which abolished alcohol or restricted alcohol prohibition and then, of course, the 19th Amendment, yeah. which was the suffrage amendment. I, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone put it in the context of of economics and of abuse. And it, when you said that, I'm just, oh, of course, that absolutely makes sense. But it's it, it's something that I've never explicitly considered as being something. And that's probably because <laughs> I didn't grow up in a feminist world. I didn't grow up around... <laughs> I didn't grow up around that sort of thing. So it's really, I mean, that's a really fascinating perspective of it that I'd never considered. And it, it totally makes sense. And it, and it really makes sense why Christians, I think, were very interested in it, too, because it was kind of a way to, to have the conversation without having the conversation. And people who knew what you meant by prohibition, whether you meant it implicitly as, I'm tired of my husband beating the out of me every night because he's drunk mm-hmm. off his ass, 
or it's you know like a it's it's not godly to do these sorts of you things. You can you can frame it. You know, once God said it, right? <laughs> what kind of uh, God said it? Right. It's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> you know. It's a really it's a really fascinating There's no perspective from that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Oh sure. <laughs> So I was very fascinated about your article um, for the New York Times. Tell us about what led you to write that article. I imagine, you know, that was a time of uprising. What kind of sparked that from you? I imagine, you know, your worlds of activism and all of that coming together. Yeah. So um, I wrote a piece on Mary Church Terrell's uh, condemnation of the U.S. Senate passing a bill in the Senate, let's be clear about this, to build a monument on National Mall to honor the Black Mammy in 1923. Okay, can we explain for the (laughs) listeners what the Black Mammy is? Yes, what they actually called it at the time was, I think, the colored mammy of the South is what they called it. Right. So that was, was going to be the mammy. But basically, this is in the 1920s at the time of the rise of the second wave of the Ku Klux Klan. And it's at a time when Jim Crow has been imposed across the nation, if not legally what they call de facto, which is that this, the North is segregated just as much as the South, but they don't always have the signs. So in that context, the Senate gets a suggestion from the United Daughters of the Confederacy, and they say to the to these senators, well, would you please pass a bill to honor our black mammies from the time of slavery? Because we all know that black mammies were devoted to their white families and their white children, and that they were good, loyal servants, and they loved slavery, right? We were a big, happy family. So think um, Gone with the Wind, that character (laughs) in there. That is usually what we think about when we think about the Black Mary. I mean... People may think Aunt mm-hmm. Jemima and, you know, all of that, yeah. um, too. If you've seen Imitation of Life, mm-hmm. you might think mm-hmm. about that character as well. But it's, you know, we have many stereotypes of black women, the Sapphire, the Jezebel, the Mammy, exactly. you know, the Jigaboo, all of these different, you know, if you watch it come enough, you know, the one black friend that's always twisting her neck and, mm-hmm. you know, doing the most. Overly sassy. <laughs> you know, you know, straight out of... Uh, you know, love and hip hop or something like that, <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. or the cool, the cool black friend, you know, um, or the, the helper, you know, yes, a master, what can I do mm-hmm. for you? You know, that kind of a person that is kind of desexualized. Yeah. You know, exactly. and then we have the hypersexualized yeah. character that is, you know, the big boobs, big, but kind of a person. So all of these stereotypes, what we're talking about, the daughters of the Confederacy are interested in bring, building a monument to the mammy. <laughs> yeah. Why do they have this? Do they got love for the mammies like that? What's going on? Well, it's just this nostalgia for slavery was an important part of the uh, what they called around the turn of the century, the so-called national reconciliation, which they meant white people would agree to honor everyone who fought 
who was white, who fought in the Civil War as kind of part of this national heroes. And we would stop worrying about secession and traitors and, you know, any of those other kinds of issues. And we wouldn't be claiming that Reconstruction had served any positive role for people who are formerly enslaved and who had become free and who had claimed their freedom. So that instead of talking about these politicians, people who became elected officials, who built churches, who did everything, schools, to create a real sense of community and purpose for themselves, that we were just going to say that Reconstruction was a failure and that it was a failure because Blacks and their white allies were incompetent, right, and that they had done a terrible job. And so as you get this, then the next thing that happens is that you go back to slavery and you revise that story and you tell that story as the, as the good old days. And that's what you want to get back to. So you erase all of the history of African-Americans since the end of slavery. And instead, you highlight that happy mammy who loves those white babies. And you don't talk about how she had to leave her own babies behind right. to take care of those white babies. Right. It's Mary Church Terrell who writes this article and just says, this is unacceptable. This is racist. This is crazy. Who would want a monument like this? And if you do this, you'll be insulting every black woman in America. And so that takes off and is syndicated nationally. And in the end, the House is afraid to take this up because they've seen that all kinds of Black people are saying, hey, <laughs> no way. But that's where it comes from. And I published it at a time when there was all this discussion about should we leave these monuments up? Should we take them down? Are they hurtful? And her argument was, yes, they are hurtful. And we need to not have monuments like that you know, in our society because they're reifying white supremacy and they need to be down. Dr. Parker, what do you think? Uh, I'm interested. I'm really kind of thinking about the parallels between Mary Church Terrell and Serena Williams here. What do you think she would think of the century that has passed between her struggles with fertility and getting proper care and where we are today? And what do you think she would think about how little has progressed in that century? Well, she would be dismayed, but not not paralyzed by that, you know, but knowing that the struggle has to continue. And that's what her persistence was all about. Whenever she found that there was a problem, she was insistent that you keep trying to find solutions. And now we have more and more options and ways to get out the word about the terrible problem with Black women's maternal and infant health, and that we have to be able to make those changes. But that's really the kind of thing that she would just not give up on. And so it, it would be dismaying, but not something that would be totally daunting to her. She would perhaps be an unceasing militant on this, yeah? She would continue <laughs> to be an unceasing militant, exactly. And I really appreciate you, Dr. Parker, for this very fascinating story. But this was so thrilling and exciting today. We should do more of these, Matthew. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It was a lot of fun to talk with you both. And I really appreciate your interest in Mary Church Terrell. And I hope that more people want to learn more about her. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing her with us today. Thank you. Dr. Allison Parker. 
He's a history department chair and Richards professor of American history at the University of Delaware. Undisciplined is a partnership with KUAF Public Radio, Ozarks at Large, and the African and African American Studies Program at the University of Arkansas. Our show is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton. She's the director of the African and African American Studies Program. The show is produced by me, Matthew Moore. Our assistant producer is Sophia Narani. We've done a lot of these episodes, but if you've missed one, it's quite all right. You can find our whole back catalog of episodes when you subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. 